The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Sing that and mean it. I, I think that the thing that I want most for this church is for each of us to sing that and mean it. That we would cry out to Him, God, speak. Would you speak and bring life? Would you speak and move in me that I would hear it and believe it and find my life in that? I'm going to talk about a passage in Deuteronomy, and there is life in this. There is life in His Word. But so often I think we, say a, we sing a song like that, and we don't actually mean it. We don't cry, speak, God. May He speak, and may we mean that. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read a passage from... Psalm 48, he says, We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. We have thought on your steadfast love. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would speak, that your voice would go forth and come to us and you would move us in our hearts that we would think on your steadfast love. And we would see that Your name and Your praise reaches to all the ends of the earth and we would be glad, full of joy. We would know life. Oh God, speak. Do a work like that here in Your people. We come from all kinds of different places right now. Father, we have a hundred, five hundred different needs. But the one thing that we all have in common and the answer to all of those needs is we need You to speak and touch our hearts with thoughts and truth about Your steadfast love and cause us to think on it. To marvel at it. Make us a church, Father, I pray. And use this morning a little bit in this process. Make us a church that is earnest, that is eager to hear Your voice. And that has ears to hear it. And responds to find life. Would You make us a people like that, Lord? And would You meet us this morning in the text of Deuteronomy chapter 30? Several thousand years ago, you wrote this. 
speak in it now to us here in this year, in this moment, in this place, and bring life from it. Teach us more about You and teach us more about what we are to be as a community. Call us and challenge us. Meet us and feed us. Father, would You commission Your Spirit to run through this room and have His way in our hearts that we would not be changed, that we would not be unchanged, but that we would be different. Keep us from the sin of being hearers and not doers. Forgive us, Lord, for our hard hearts. Draw us here now to sit under Your Word. As I and my friends here, we meet over Your Word. Let us be under it. And I pray, speak. Would Christ be glorified here and would Your people be blessed. Amen. This morning we turn our attention to Deuteronomy chapter 30. A chapter of challenge as as well as one of promise and hope. We're moving through the book of Deuteronomy here and, and at the end here what we've seen is that Moses is lifting up his eyes and he is looking down through the ages, if you will. He's looking at something in the distant and he's, distance and he's challenging not only those who are listening to him right now, but all those who will read this. He's, he's challenging those of us down through the ages who will listen to this word. And he is offering us promise and hope and life. The very tail end of Deuteronomy. Last week in chapter 29, I leaned on a couple of, uh, two really uh, unique points that have shown in that passage amidst what was, uh, again, a repeated challenge, a call to obey, follow after Him by a mechanism of grace. I've seen that repeatedly numerous times. He calls His people to obey and follow Him, and He does that by grace, not by whip. So there are two unique things that I leaned on last week in, in the midst of that repeated call again. One, we saw that God graciously gives new hearts to whomever, whenever He chooses. That was in verse 4. He does that. He gives new hearts. That's going to come up again today. And we also notice how God gives community. Verses 18 and 19 especially emphasize that. God gives new hearts and God gives community to help us watch against and war against sin in us personally and in all of us corporately. So that was very encouraging and very positive. However, the last third of that chapter is very bleak. Because while he says that Moses says God's going to give these things, he also says, unfortunately, I know the trajectory here. And you're going to walk away from that. And the last third of the chapter is very bleak because the last third of the chapter is talking about what's coming for Israel and that is very bleak. The last part of that chapter has the, the most concentrated wrath in the whole book of Deuteronomy. As the curses that were promised if they would walk away from God and walk down this path of disobedience, as the curses that were promised there, 
are in fact going to come. Officially, it's blessings or curses. If you walk the path of, of following God, walk with Him, there will be blessing. And if you walk against Him and away from Him, there will be cursing. But I know you are going to walk away from Him and against Him and the cursing is coming. Culminating in the greatest curse, the exile. That day is coming. They will be cast out of the promised land into captivity. They haven't even conquered the land yet and Moses is already talking about how they're going to be thrown out of it. You will be spiritually lazy and spiritually blind amidst the abundance of all God's blessings. And He will discipline and correct until finally He throws you out into foreign lands. Which connects directly to our chapter for this morning, chapter 30. Where Moses sees even more coming on the other side of this great curse, this great exile. A great return of the outcasts and the nations to the Lord. So we're going to look at this morning, and I was really tempted, I would, I could and wanted to preach a sermon just about salvation history. But how and what God does in calling back the exiles. When, when is that? Because as we'll see, probably something leaps to our mind. Oh, He's calling people back when they return in, in the 5th century B.C. or so. When they return from these foreign lands. That's what He's talking about. In fact, no. A, a better look, a more thorough look at salvation history would reveal that yes, the people came back, but they did not return They were not a returned people. That was yet to come in the New Covenant when He would gather all of His people from all of the nations back to Himself. I wanted to preach about that, but I won't. Because what I want to talk about is something that I think is very important for us individually and us as a church to see how God works, what God does to turn us as people, as a church, to Himself. What He does and what He expects of us. So we're going to see a couple things there, again, about what God does and what He expects of us. It can help bring about a turning of people to God. So that's where we're going this morning. Let me read the chapter. This is chapter 30, all of it, verses 1 to 20. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all His commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. 
For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as He took delight in your fathers. When you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep His commandments and His statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? For the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying His voice and holding fast to Him, for He is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. The Word of the Lord. The passage consists of three distinct sections. Verses 1 to 10 start off with Moses gazing off into the future, looking beyond the future that he has already spoken of in the previous chapter. He's looking beyond the exile to the return. Verse 1 begins, When all of this has happened, what? Well, the things before. When the blessings and the curses that I have set before you, notice the phrase there. He's talking about 900, 1,000 years in the future. The things that I've set before you now are going to happen. And you're going to be sitting there looking around and you're going to say, huh. The things that I set before you will come back and they will come to mind. And you're in the midst of them. You'll come to your senses and return to the Lord and obey Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. When that happens, what do you think will happen then? Which path is that going to be on? path of blessing, obviously. That's how the whole book is structured. What will follow? Blessing. Then, verse 3, and though it says then, the Hebrew grammar is really just a consistent string of ands. They've only written then because there's some logic there. But it's, And this will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. So you will turn back to Him, and He will turn back to you. Same word. He will return to you, restore you, turn and gather you back to Himself from among all the nations where you're scattered. Even if you're in the utmost parts of heaven. Not meaning that they're actually thrown to heaven, but He just says, you know, the four corners of the earth, wherever you are, He will bring back those who have turned to Him. And make you even more prosperous than before. That's the path of blessing. Which the people can and will know again. 
when they turn. And what about the curses? Well, verse 7, they'll be poured out on those who oppress the people. Turn the tables on them. You keep all the commandments in that day, you'll be righteous in my eyes, and you'll be even more prosperous, more blessed, more numerous than before as I again take delight in showering blessing on you. When when is that going to happen? When you obey the voice of the Lord. When you turn back to Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Verse 10 and verse 2. That's the bracketing. That's what he's underlining. This has to happen first. A wholehearted turning to Him with all your heart and with all of your soul. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. He's not changing the standard. That's the Shema. That's the first commandment. That is the deal. Plain as day. Which is what the second section emphasizes. This is not hard to understand. Moses is saying in, in 11 to 14, has there not been a consistent drumbeat throughout this? I am the Lord your God. Have no other gods before me. And a turning away from that leads to destruction. But when you turn back to that, it leads to blessing. It is not far off in the heavens or way beyond the sea. It's not esoteric. It's not mysterious. It is right there. Children have it memorized. You sing it in songs. It is clear. So therefore, I lay it before you and say, choose. This is not complicated. Which path? In the third section, 15 to 20, that's what he's... He's constantly harping on it. And it's very personal. Notice how the first person throughout it, I, I, I. And there's an earnestness there, is there not? I call heaven and earth to witness against you. I'm laying out two paths right in front of you. A path that has the Lord your God as supreme in everything, and it is a path of blessing. And a path that has turned, verse 17, has turned to follow the gods, the idols of the nations, and leads to destruction. Don't walk there. Do walk here. I call you to it. Verse 20. For He is your life. And length of days. Moses wants the hearts of his people fully. Hearts of God's people fully turned to God. Because God wants the hearts of His people fully turned to Him. So he's earnest in that. And he preaches it. Get this, this is going to be important. He preaches it knowing that he just wrote verses 1 to 10. And he just said that. He knows I'm talking to people who are nodding, uh-huh, 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 while they are walking down this other path. And I know where this is going. I just said chapter 29. But he preaches this anyway. He calls people to it, believing that someday God will do a work in the heart and bear fruit from this word proclaimed. That's the text. Let me summarize it in a simple sentence and then break it apart into two observations. God turns people to Himself by sovereign grace, 
through challenge from the Word. God turns people to Himself through sovereign grace and the challenge of the Word. So two things that I'm pulling out of this passage. As I said, I could have preached a sermon about salvation history and really want to because it stirs me and it encourages me. And I'm going to put a little bit of that in there because it's important for us to know where we stand in salvation history, that we stand post verses 1 to 10. It's going to be important for us. I'm going to touch on that a little bit. But what I'm bringing out here and trying to emphasize in these two points are things that should be and I think are helpful for us as people and as a church as we try to be those who turn to the Lord to find blessing on this path. So he turns people to himself by sovereign grace through challenge from the Word. I'm just going to break that in half. Two observations. Here's the first one. Similar to what we saw last week. God's sovereign grace enables people to turn from the path of death to the Lord of life. God's grace, and it is a sovereign grace, enables people to turn from the path of death to the Lord of life. And that word turn is a critical word in this chapter. Shows up in several different places, but particularly in verses 1 to 10, it is all over the place. It's a word that can be translated repent, and is the word in the Old Testament translated repent? And if you look through there, you'll see all kinds of words like that. Return or turn or restore. It's translated a number of different times, and there are several times where it's not actually translated into English because the syntax in English would be awkward. In verse 3, it talks about, I think it's verse 3, about how he will gather you again. Well, literally it says he will turn and gather. Turning. The people turning and God turning. Turning is the deal. Two paths. Turn from one to the other. Don't turn from this one to that one. Turning. And it is a heart level endeavor. It is a heart level turn first and foremost. It, it of course, does lead to obedience. I mean, we could follow it through clearly. He's got obedience and, and keeping the commandment laced throughout here. Verse 2, it is an obedience with all your heart and all your soul. Verse 16 talks about keeping the commandments and obeying them. So obedience clearly comes, not a sinless obedience. Nobody here in this life is sinless, but there is a, a turning in action that follows, but it follows first a turning in heart. It is, it is primarily initially an internal turn to love the Lord your God. It's in here. With all of your heart and with all of your soul. That's in here. It's an affection turn that then leads to behavior that matches your affection. We act according to what we want to change inside. So the call then clearing the passage is turn in here to turn from the path of death to the path of life. Or to put it another way, repent. Repent of walking away from Him and turn to walking with Him. And with a call like that in a passage, I have to reiterate it. 
turn. And I'm, I'm speaking to every single person in here. I, I realize that most, not all, I realize that most here are Christians. And you have already initially dramatically turned and, and have embraced Christ and believe. I'm talking to you too. Because today, right now, you must turn. We all are called to repent of sin and turn to Him and walk with Him. But there are some here who have not ever turned. And I plead with you, like Moses does. There are two paths here. One leads to life and one leads to death. Turn. It is not a turning or a changing of the things you do. Be very careful there. Because while obedience follows, obedience is not the defining turning that I'm talking about. I'm not, I'm not saying change and start to obey Him. That'll follow. I'm talking about the heart. This is very important. The call to you where, where you sit, turn in affection. Christ must be supreme in your affection. He must reign above all other things and what you love and what you follow and what you aspire to, what you hope for. Turn. And I, I hope that you sense I'm working something here that is very difficult. Yea, even impossible. Because the best you can do is know what you should love. You cannot just decide to love something. So you must be turned in affection. You must love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And you cannot do it in yourself. The bracket around verses 1 and 10 with all of your heart and all of your soul, with all of your heart and with all of your soul, how in the world does that happen? Verse 6. Along with a bunch of other things that will happen. Verse 6. This is how we are changed to love Him with all of our heart and with all of our soul. He will circumcise the heart so that, see that, so that, causal, He will circumcise the heart so that you will love Him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. The hearts of your children also that you may love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, that you may live. We are utterly dependent on the grace of God to work a change in us. You must be changed. And as the New Testament confirms three times, that is a gift. He grants repentance. He gives it to Jews and Gentiles in the book of Acts. And it is the hope and prayer of the church in 2 Timothy that God may grant repentance. That God may give turning. That He would cut away the flesh. You get the imagery of the circumcision. The cutting away of dead flesh around a heart. That He would cut it away. That, to use the previous chapter's language, you would have a new heart that understands. New eyes to see. New ears to hear. 
So what am I talking about? I'm saying, Moses is saying, turn, turn. You must be turned. This puts you at the mercy of God. Oh God, help. And if you're sitting there saying, I, I want to be turned. I need to be turned. Oh God, help. He's in the process of turning you. Embrace that and run with it. We are dependent on the grace of God to turn us. To release us. Salvation is of the Lord. All of it is of the Lord. So how do you respond to the Lord? God, help. God, turn. God, pour grace on me, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. If you're a non-Christian, you say, Oh God, would you forgive a sinner like me? And if that makes any sense to you, if there's any desire in you at all, perhaps even at this moment, what He's doing is giving you a new heart. That you see it and you care. But if you're a Christian, you say, God, give grace to me. The grace that brings salvation, Titus 2. The grace that brings salvation, would you also shower that same grace on me to teach me to say no to ungodliness? The grace to teach me. That's God teaching me. God, I am in need of your grace. I am dependent on your grace. Please help. God's sovereign grace enables people to turn from the path of death to the Lord of life. talked about that last week. The same thing shows up in the previous chapter. So there is important theology here in this. It's important for us to think, even theologically, to think a little bit about this turning, this repentance. Repentance is not a work. You're saved by grace through faith, not of works. Repentance is not a work. You don't change what you do. That would be a work. But repentance is required. Because God gives it. We have to cry out, oh God, help me. And we have to emphasize the need for repentance. We have a massive problem in the church in America. Perhaps even here. We have a massive problem in the church in America that we have taken the gospel and separated from it repentance. And what that does is that has made this gospel not the gospel. There must be a turning in affection or one is not saved. But isn't that a work? No, because it's a gift. God changes the heart. This puts us... This, this puts us vulnerable and helpless before Him because we want to say, what, what am I supposed to do? Is there something I can do? Yeah, you just say, I say, turn, repent. And you will if God has given you repentance. You don't have to think too hard about that. Just repent. Love Him. Follow Him. There's important theology there. But there's also something that we need to look at that that tells us about this salvation history thing. Moses is talking about when this is going to happen 1,500 years down the road from when Moses is speaking. But 2,000 years back down the road from where we stand. This day has come. God has begun and still does today, maybe even at this very moment, God still does today reach out and change hearts. 
to cut away flesh, to give new hearts. Which is really good news and important for what we're going to talk about next. It's really good news because it tells us that God is at work. God is active. God actually is doing this now. We're no longer stuck in the place where we have to say, one day maybe, but not now. We can say, even today. Ask Him to do it and trust that He does. There is a work of God going on in every room, in every state, all across this land, even right now as people preach, people listen. There is a work going on in the world even today, tomorrow, the next day. God is reaching out and He is changing hearts. He is turning people to Him. He is giving new hearts and eyes that see and ears that hear and awakening and shaking and poking and causing people to, as they sit in their lostness, say, huh. But as they sit in their lostness and say, huh, what do they say, huh, about? Something comes to mind. And that leads us to the second observation in this text. So here's the second point. We turn to the Lord of life as we are personally challenged to trust God's Word. First part's about what God does. Second part's about what we do. We challenge or are challenged personally to trust God's Word. People turn, sit there, huh, and what comes to mind is what Moses set before them. Moses is speaking the Word of God. Getting a little ahead of myself. The subject in the chapter is clearly about turning to the Lord and turning away from the idols of the world. And the issue that hinders that is not an intellect problem. It's not, it's not a fact problem. Verses 11 to 14 underline that. The commandment that they have heard is plain as day, simple. It's easy to understand what one is to do. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And he's been proving that by miracle. He's been proving that by abundant grace poured out on them again and again and again. He even declared it with his own mouth on Mount Horeb and then has been declaring it repeatedly through the mouth of Moses. They heard that. We've heard that. The Lord is God. He blesses. We should follow Him as plain as day. So this should be easy. Well, it would be if it was only about intellect and knowledge. But that's not the problem. The issue is one of what I'll call intentional trust. Look at a number of different places, but look at verse 20, for instance. Verse 20 says, Choose life, love the Lord your God, obeying His voice, holding fast, and that's the, that's the call to turn. For He is your life. That's who He is. There's the fact made known. He's your life and length of days. Love Him and hold fast to Him for life because He is your life. So grab Him. Hold on to Him. Easy. 
plain. Unfortunately, we don't do that. We don't love Him and we don't hold fast to Him because we don't believe that sentence. We know that sentence. It's right there. I say it all the time, something like that. But when it comes right down to it, at the point of temptation, there is laid before us two paths. This path, walk it with Him. He is your life. He will meet you and bless you and feed you. And this path says, in the midst of the screaming kids on Tuesday afternoon, no, what you need for life is obedience and silence out of them. And so you're going to get flustered until you get it and yell at them until they stop. You're saying, I know, I know, yeah, 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 but no, this is what I need. Or, this is life. He will bless you and fill you and give you heart contentment. A couple of clicks away is some great pleasure. No. Click. It's not a fact problem. It's a belief problem. It's plain as day, but we don't trust Him. I am your life. No. I mean, yes. But no. For that to change, for that belief to change, ultimately there is a heart change. That's the first point. God ultimately must reach in and pour grace on us and change us. We are always dependent on salvation and on growth. We are always dependent on the grace of God. We do not grow ourselves. Moses knows that. Moses just wrote that twice in this chapter and the previous chapter. But what does he do? He does not say, well, I mean, frankly, for there to be change here would depend on the grace of God to change him. So I'm going to sit back on the couch and watch golf until God does something. doesn't do that. Knowing that God must act, Moses steps forward and passionately, personally challenges them. Choose. Why? Because he knows that how God works, it's not in a vacuum, he works through means. And how God will work to turn these people to them is in the midst of their misery, He will shake them and cut away a little bit of the flesh and bring back and set before them that which Moses set before them, the Word of God. And they will go, huh. As they now look at it with eyes that see it, given by God, they now hear the Word of God from Moses with ears that now hear it. All the facts that they knew, they now understand. Moses knows, I need to set this before them because there will come a point when it will be set before them. And God always works through His Word. Challenging, declaring, promising. What is the Word that He sets before them? There is life on this path. The grace of God will flow on this path like it did before. Guys, you know this. It's, it's flown before. It will flow again. It's right here. It is the promise of God. It is a grace mechanism. We talked this before. Lays it out in front of them knowing that at some point God will work and bear fruit from that in their lives. 
That's how Moses understands God to be working. Maybe a little bit in people, right, as he's speaking there, but he knows that it's not in mass going to happen for a long time yet. But he knows that it will happen. They will turn to God as the grace of God gives them eyes to see the life of God in the Word of God that was set before them by the man of God or woman of God. In this case, it's a man. Follow that. They will turn to God when the grace of God gives them eyes to see the life of God that is found in the Word of God set before them by the people of God. We turn to the Lord of life as we are personally challenged to trust God's Word. Which means something very important for us as a church. Last week in chapter 29, I was elaborating on the biblical mandate of gospel in community. Listen to that sermon if you want. I kind of flesh this out a little bit. But the need for people to be living in each other's business. For us as a people to be living with, connected to, joined to other people. Helping them to, to fight against sin and to not turn away. Well, join that to what I'm talking about right now. How do we do that? We are a, a people, are meant to be a people who live together, join to others, helping them to not turn away by bringing out and personally challenging them with the Word of God. That's what God will use when He acts. That's what God will use to turn people for the first time or again today. Knowing each other, listening to each other so as to know the actual facts of the case, not just spouting off things you think you know. Knowing each other, listening to each other, and then saying to one another, He is your life. Sister, brother, He is your life. Choose this path. Obey Him in this particular way. Trust Him to be this particular thing. Here's the promise that, that applies to this situation that I've just listened to and have understood and cannot speak to. So believe Him and trust Him. Here's what He says and here's what He warns about. We all hear that and we say, okay, that, that's reasonable. But, but if you do that, then you can't let the person get away. You have, to, you have to hold to them, stick with them, walk through life to see, did that go in one ear and out the other? Or is there some traction there? Is there a desire to follow but a struggle? Or can I help in some other way? We stay with people. Connected to them and working together for deliberate trust and specific obedience. By a mechanism of grace... I just want to throw that out there because I am not talking about us becoming police or cops with each other. Pulling out a whip. A mechanism of grace. But it is very deliberate and focused and careful. This is what I see. This is what I'm going to speak to. This is how I'm going to take God's Word and apply it to your life for your good. 
for you to find life on this path. That's what builds the body, the truth spoken in love. Let me use a familiar word to talk about what I'm getting at here. I don't use this word a lot, but it's a familiar word. I'm just talking about discipleship. Not a new concept, I hope. I'm just talking about discipleship. Calling each other to trusting and turning. Not living separate, isolated, by ourselves. Man, you can fool yourself. I hope you realize how much you fool yourself. Maybe you don't because you're fooling yourself. You need, I need other people to call you on it. When I'm talking about gospel and community, what I'm talking about really just is discipleship. People around other people and in between them and all around them and back and forth between them, the gospel. In other words, the word of God laced with his promises. So I want to be extremely clear and really dogmatic about something. I think, I, maybe I'm wrong, I think that we as a church are too much of a single personality, sermon-based church. Now, let me quickly qualify that. I don't have anything against that single personality. I'm fond of him. And I don't have anything at all against preaching. I, I might be one of the world's biggest fans of preaching. I am thoroughly, I think, biblically and theologically convinced of its critical place in the church. Humanly speaking, the things that we can do, God has ordained preaching as the foundation of ministry. Of the church, the foundation. So I, I am not bashing preaching by any stretch. I'm just saying that you don't have much of a building if all you have is a stellar foundation. If we want to build a building on top of the foundation, the church, in other words, it takes shape on the foundation of preaching as all of us spend a whole lot more time one-on-one and two-on-two and ten-on-ten interacting with each other over real, particular details of your life. And real, particular biblical truth that is relevant and applies to those real, particular details and the sins that you struggle with in them. that is laced with tangible love and real earnest prayer. That must be. That is the only way that a building, a church, can be built on top of a foundation. It has to be. 
It's discipleship. And it cannot be in a class. An example. Yesterday we had a yard sale. Put up signs and all that. I should say Heidi had a yard sale. I attended. (laughs) We had a yard sale. And somebody else was there with us helping. And after this yard sale was winding down, conversation came about. Maybe some of you got an email that one person had gotten an email about from a Christian ministry in town seeking to supply, basically supply a household worth of goods furniture and accessories and whatnot, for uh, a single woman who needed to set up a household. I don't know all the details, but it's a Christian ministry trying to do that. And we got to talking about different things that we had. And it came up that we, me, our family, we have an extra set of silverware. Our previous set of silverware, we, you know, we'd lost a fork here and a knife there and a spoon there. And so it was getting a little difficult to consistently have a, a set of silverware for a family of five. So we set that three-quarter set aside and bought new silverware. And so it's sitting in our basement the last two months or so. This woman needs a set of silverware. We have a set of silverware in our basement. Oh, somebody suggested. What about that silverware? And I was like, oh, that's my silverware. I might need that. I have a plan for that silverware. It's going to become our camping silverware. If we ever go camping. (laughs) It's been sitting there unused for two months, which have been the prime months for camping. (laughs) That's my, that's, that's our, that's our camping silverware. If we give it away, what are we going to do? Now, I've been to plenty of classes. I've taught a whole bunch of stuff about it is better to give than receive. What do you have that you did not receive from the Lord? I mean, I can work it all through. I know. But the fact is, at the moment, my heart went like that. I didn't want to give it. And what I need at that time is somebody around me who knows you have a set of silverware in your basement. And who knows I can see the greed on your face. And who is courageous enough to say, give it, brother. You are sliding towards believing that life and contentment is found if you have a second set of silverware in your basement. (laughs) Not literally, but you see what I'm saying? I need that. That's That's a piece of my life that's important. I need somebody to say, no, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Intensity varying on how firmly I resist. Do you see, I need that for my growth? Do you see, I need that for my joy in God? Can you imagine the blessing that would come to me from giving that is being lost to me because I am holding and it's not going to happen because I taught, I taught in a class or was taught in a class I should give. It's only going to happen standing in my driveway when the person says, I know you've got a set of silverware and I can see it that you don't want to give it. 
That's me growing as a disciple. That's discipleship in a community setting, not in a classroom. I was talking to someone this week and I realized that I have not been clear enough on this. And so it has seemed perhaps that when I talk about gospel and community that I'm just talking about us becoming a group of people who have good relationships, friendships that are, that are fun, that are encouraging or helpful. This is what I'm talking about. Me being pried loose from my stuff in a very practical, small way. Gospel and community. Or, Jesus' language, personally being challenged to trust God's Word. Is He not enough for you, Steve? Come on. Let alone that you have already another set of silverware upstairs. Now, maybe I'll say, no, forget you. And then this person can say, well, I guess God needs to work in his heart. And we live now in the era where God works in hearts. I will pray. And I will ask God to pry Steve's heart loose from his forks and knives and spoons. I'll pray. And I know that God does that. There's hope now on this side of what Moses is talking about. God will do that. So we pray. But we don't only pray. We also proclaim. We preach. Because God not only calls people, turns people to Himself by sovereign grace. It is sovereign grace working through the means of humans speaking to one another the Word of God and calling each other to repentant faith. We have to be about that because the Bible absolutely requires it. Discipleship is not an option. It it isn't. It is not an option. Which means that community is not an option. It is not an option that you can choose to only come here all by yourself and sit and listen to a great sermon. It's not an option. It's not permitted. Because He calls you to be disciples. Discipleship happens here, but not enough and not with any degree of specificity. For that, you need other people. So I plead with you, my, my hope, my, my prayer for this morning is that you would embrace a vision of an interconnected, gospel-soaked, for the sake of being a disciple-making church. And that you would embrace a personal vision yourself, of being an other-centered, other-connected, gospel-soaked person. In other words, you yourself becoming a disciple and making disciples. It's not an option. We turn to the Lord of life as we are personally challenged to trust God's Word. And he changes hearts and uses his word to call people to him. That's what we have to be about. So I pray we become. So let me pray towards that right now. Pray with me, please. God, I pray that we would become a church like that, that you would make us a people who listen to your word. I pray that you would speak. That you would move people right now and draw them to be committed 
of a process of, of, of community around the gospel for the sake of gospel growth. Convince us that that's important. Convince us that we have to set aside other things that get in the way, whatever they may be. Father, I pray for us as a church community, and I, I ask that you would make us a, a people who get better at this because we are not good at it right now. Lord, I am thankful that the things that you call us to are for our good. It would be hard if what you called for and what you demanded and required was misery. But it is for our joy. Thank you for that. And I pray, would you persuade us of it? Help us to see the truth that when you are calling us to yourself and to each other for the sake of calling us to yourself, that it is for our good, for blessing, for joy, for life. In Spirit of God, I pray, work it in our church. May Christ be glorified in us and may your people be blessed with close communion with Him forever. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.